Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dahlia Kinsey. Dahlia is a queer, Black registered dietitian, keynote speaker, the creator of the Body Liberation for All podcast, and author of Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal your self-image, and achieve body liberation on a mission to spread joy, reduce suffering, and eliminate health disparities in the LGBTQIA and BIPOC community. Dahlia rejects diet culture and teaches people to use nutrition as a self-care and personal empowerment tool to counter the damage of systemic oppression. Dahlia works at the intersection of holistic wellness and social justice, continually creating wellness tools and resources that center the most vulnerable individuals that hold multiple marginalized identities. Dahlia's writing can be found at dahliakinseysubstack.com. Welcome to the deep dive. How are you? Great. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. So we have a lot to go through and I'm going to try to do this in as, as organized and concise a fashion, which are two things that I'm not good at. But <laughs> nonetheless, let's, let's get into it. Right. And, you know, I, I want to start off with the opening quote from the book, which is from Audre Lord, like, you know, when they say start at the beginning, we're literally starting at the beginning. And it it highlights the quote, which I won't read in full, but what it does is that it talks about highlighting differences and, and being apart from what's considered the norm. And I want to give you an opportunity to share why you thought it was so important to open up with that sort of that conversation of how do we think about and assess what is quote unquote normal and what does that do to people who move in multiple identities and complexities? Mm. After spending a lot of time with other marginalized people in 2020, I finally, after almost 40 years of being on the planet, realized that a lot of the ongoing issues and concerns I was dealing with were linked to systemic oppression and they were not at all unique to me. And you would think that you would know this sort of thing early in life as a Black person living in the United States, but usually you don't have access to this information because even when you go into healthcare settings, no one acknowledges that the way you're treated because of racism affects not only your worldview, but how safe you feel in your body and how comfortable you feel trusting yourself in general. You're trained to think that everything that comes naturally to you is not good enough and is almost there, but not assimilated enough. Nothing's ever enough. So for years in my writing, in my business, I struggled with procrastination and I kept making it a character flaw. I kept making it an issue related to motivation. But we all know in the early days of the pandemic, most of us had 
so much quiet time, way more time for reflection than you ever have. And that's when I really started to feel the stress of the second wave of the civil rights movement and all kinds of other unresolved issues that we didn't quite get to in therapy. And I was seeking out the company of safe people, people who weren't going to make me feel any worse than I already felt. And that's when I really started to enjoy community with people of color that were also welcoming to my other identities. And that's where I repeatedly heard the same themes of feeling like you don't belong and how many different ways that affects your life when you constantly feel like you need to prove that you're acceptable or normal. And I mean, that's a that's a great response. And it and it makes me think about normality in a in a, another context of science and, and health related fields. I'm gonna link those two things together because I think both of them, not as a practitioner, but I I'm a layman, right? Like I'm just someone that has moved in the world and kind of generally understand these terms, right? But as a practitioner, I think one of the things that that I've come to in science and, and medical fields and health fields is this assumption of neutrality, right? That that science is this thing that is based in logic, fact, and reason. Mm. So ideas around bias, whether those are, are race or gender or other things, simply cannot exist, right? Like this is a, a common refrain, I think, among most laymen that haven't looked at the intersections of those things. So when you're working and, and, and living and, and educating yourself in a field that prides itself on neutrality and rationality and all these things that are part and parcel of it, but yet you are realizing and seeing other realities within them, how do you manage that, manage, quote unquote, manage and, and reconcile that in order to come to the conclusions that you have about it? It's really interesting that you specify from a layman's perspective, maybe you don't notice that there really is no way for bias to not affect us in science as well. Because what I find is that people who dedicate their lives to science don't necessarily get that, don't want to believe that. They want to believe that the scientific method cannot be affected by our humanity. And that unfortunately is not the case. There's so many different ways where being biased affects what you research, what assumptions you have going in, what questions you never even think to ask, how you even approach a problem. It isn't rational to think that the culture or the norms of the day are not affecting how we evaluate data. And I also bought into the neutrality aspect because that's the focus when you're studying throughout primary school and in college, if you're a science major, it really is drilled into you. Like we've got this hammered out. It's all perfection. Just trust the data. But there are plenty of times where you can read a study and what you see in the conclusion doesn't match how you understood the data. Or even as you're reading it, you may discern that there were questions that weren't addressed in the paper itself. This doesn't necessarily mean these weren't questions that occurred to the researchers, but it wasn't necessarily documented. So one thing that I repeatedly saw 
while I was studying was that people would say they were concerned about negative health outcomes that African-Americans were experiencing, but they would attribute all of these outcomes to nonsensical things, nonsensical in my Black opinion. Like, oh, these issues with high blood pressure, they can be attributed to the transatlantic slave trade and the fact that people were able to survive also links them to like a high propensity for high blood pressure. Evolution doesn't happen that quickly. And if it did, we would be seeing it around us all of the time. But I've had multiple instructors explain high blood pressure in African-Americans as though it is a genetic issue, couldn't possibly be linked to stress, couldn't possibly be linked to other factors, environmental factors, couldn't possibly be linked to systemic oppression. It always has to do with, oh, you survived slavery. That's all you are. You picked up negative health habits because you used to eat the scraps. Like repeatedly hearing this in an educational setting is damaging, but it also draws attention away from things that we could actually do to improve some of these health outcomes. The other thing that really was a constant was people attributing these issues to lower income status and not acknowledging that we see a lot of the same health problems in high-earning Black populations and high-earning other POC populations. So clearly that's that's not the problem. There's a difference between cause and effect and something just being correlated. You see one thing, typically when you see the other thing doesn't mean they caused each other or linked in that way. But when it comes to race, it seems like it's beyond a lot of people's comprehension to ask whether or not what they're observing is a cause and effect thing. If you're not doing a double blind study, you can't control for a lot of other factors, but people will look at observational studies and act like it was a double blind, which, you know, it, it isn't. And they'll draw these conclusions and state them as though they're fact when it's just their theory based on what they saw. And it's that framing that this is a fact and anybody questioning me needs to be able to validate why they're questioning it when that's really not how science is supposed to work. An abundance of questions is a good thing. Using your critical thinking skills is a good thing. And that's one of the major benefits of being a marginalized person is if you allow it to, it teaches you to question everything. Because if all the social programming around you is not meant to serve you, if you can see that people are constantly drawing conclusions and making assumptions that are not based on anything factual, it can really enhance your ability to question things and draw your own conclusions. And, you know, it's, I, I emphasize the the layman point for a reason, right? Because I'm clearly not as as trained in, in this stuff as, as you are, right? But what I have noticed is that even when you're, when you're sharing these stories, you know, there is the academic way, you know, the academy way in, in any background, and then these things slip into the cultural milieu, right? Which is which is where I live, right? And and because I, as you were telling your story about hypertension, this is going to be maybe for those who are a little younger, they might not remember this show, but there's a show called Good Times, right? And this is a very popular show in the 70s, Norman Lear, the Evans family living in the ghetto, 
of Chicago, right? Projects. And I remember the episode where James had hypertension, right? And the entire root cause of that was the foods that they ate, right? Like, you know, as, as you know, Florida and Michael and all the rest of the family trying to figure out why James is so mad as the dad and he's breaking up all the tables. It's like, we eat high cholesterol food, James. We can only, the supermarket only has pork, you know, and all these <laughs> kind of things. But these things become de facto truths in, in communities, right? And I And I think to some extent, when I was reading your book, you make it very clear that you are speaking to address any number of these sorts of cultural fallacies that that exist right like that seems to to be a, a pretty important thing to take on you know when we are facing mm -hmm. you know we don't always get information from the textbooks right sometimes we get it from good times well it's so interesting good times is the perfect example because that did come on when probably before I was born, but still I watched a lot of those episodes when they were played, uh, replayed and their lives were so stressful. Even though JJ had all the jokes, even though they still showed them as well-rounded, complete human beings in a way that was pretty impressive for the time, they were just constantly dealing with hurdles one after another, after another, after another. How could their bodies not be affected by that environment? They were constantly having to fight to just live. You know, people wouldn't just let them be. And yeah. it's interesting that on top of all of that, you're essentially blamed for your health problems because you aren't eating in an assimilated way. When in reality, we've all seen this in real life. Two people can do exactly the same thing. It could be an ill-advised or generally understood to be ill-advised health habit, right? And it doesn't affect them. It depends on the body that you're in. And true, it does help to not eat a super high in animal fat diet. However, there are plenty of people eating that way and they're not experiencing the same negative health outcomes. So then what's the difference? Really having positive emotional and social support, it's beyond a contributing factor to wellness. It feels like the more I see in my own life and the more I see in research, it is the factor. But how do you get that if you belong to a group of people that's constantly having to clear other hurdles just to exist? That affects your ability to be in community with other people who are having that same experience because they don't have any space for it. They don't have capacity for that. And I definitely saw that even among my circle during the pandemic. The pandemic's been incredibly stressful for everyone. But who was it the most stressful for? It's people who already had a lot on their plate. Can that person be there for you when you need to unpack or talk about all that's going on with you when they're over there burying cousins and uncles and they're an essential worker? Probably not. So a lot of people are not able to enjoy really solid, consistent social support because of all of these other stressors. And these are not things for us to take personal responsibility for. We did not create these systems. It's, it's interesting because you're right. The Evans family was 
under incredible amounts of stress. And my other counter 70s family that was also a lot under a lot of stress is the Ingalls family from Little House on the Prairie, another show. That oh, I yeah. Watched. How did they manage? But was they, that from a time period where they weren't even expected to live until 50 or 40? <laughs> yeah, they were in the 1870s. <laughs> they were 80s. constantly having a hard time. <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah, the Ingalls family really was was on it, you know, but they also had community, right? They had Walnut Grove. So maybe there's something to that. I, I think you said like a lot of really amazing things. And I do want to get to some of the clear like health stuff, but I can't resist because you gave such a, a great answer about capacity. And when you're in these marginalized communities and you're we're dealing with so many things, all of these stressors that we talked about, it's, it's hard to make space. And I'd, I'd love to to dig a little bit deeper into that because I, I also feel, and this is also anecdotal, right? That part of, of our ability to survive the things we've survived as a people, talking about Black people in this case, has been through the ability to make community, right? To pick up and support one another when actual supports are ripped away, right? Like your, your family becomes more than just your biological family in some cases because of you know, in the worst case scenarios, there's slavery where people can be murdered or sold away and families can be literally separated or through other things, right? Like modern day times, COVID, right? Caretakers now take on other people. So not saying that that, that suffering is somehow like, you know, you were worthy of martyr status, but like, how do we reconcile those those two realities that at the same time, it can be hard to make space. We've only survived because we've made space. Like how do we Ooh, yeah. play with with that? This was not a this yeah. was not a question I had written down. So you kind of brought me here. <laughs> I I love that question. I think sometimes just awareness is the key. Even being told that community is important, that it will enhance your health and enhance your life, make you more resilient against. You know, there are lots of things people do to manage their stress that destroy the body and destroy their lives but it gives them such immediate comfort in the moment. But you'll find that addiction, even in labs, even with rats, if a rat has, they're very social animals, which not a lot of people know, but if they are in a cage or in an environment where they have other rats to socialize with and play with, and you give them something addictive, they may use it, but they will not use it to the point of death. But if the rat is alone and isolated, they will use it to the point of death. So there's so many times when you wonder like, oh, you know, so many people go to college and pick up drug habits and you wonder, well, why did this person end up letting their life or having their life consumed, not letting, because it is not something you're choosing, but how do you end up having your life consumed by this substance abuse problem? And how come other people were able to use it recreationally? And true, it still also depends on the individual body that you're in, but a big predictive factor is what is your social support like? Is there a massive hole that you are trying to fill with this substance or are you doing it because, you know, a lot of people enjoy recreational drugs? It's a known thing. It is so important to be aware that when you're going into the doctor's office and they're telling you, you know, stop eating whatever ethnic food you're eating, it's equally important to be told 
that your social support is extremely important. And usually when you go into healthcare settings, the only people who seem to care about your social worker, who's maybe assigned to you before you're discharged after a major surgery or something. And you can kind of predict how well is somebody going to do with managing this new diagnosis based on what kind of support they have. But you cannot, as a social worker, invent support. You cannot produce it like out of thin air. But what if this person would have known earlier in life that social support was crucial and something to prioritize? Maybe instead of obsessing over their body size and dieting so much that they can't go out with their friends because it'll throw them off their plan, maybe they could have struck a balance, understanding that laughter and connection and a sense of safety is so important to your well-being that that is just as important as whatever those other goals were that are related to your wellness. And sometimes I think there still won't be space because some people are just so, so overwhelmed. It's like the whole world is pulling on them. Mm -hmm. But for most people, I think just knowing how beneficial it is, is a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's that's an amazing counterpoint. And it, it makes me think of so much of my thought process and work has been about suggesting that we're in we're in multiple crises, poly crises, but they're all rooted in care, how we care for one another and, and think about care institutionally. Like how are we building that into everything that that we create, which gives me an opportunity to kind of segue more into institutionalized racism as a health crisis, which is something that that many organizations are 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 saying and talking about, and you mentioned it again very, very early on in, in the book. And it made me, as I was reading that section, I, I thought about um, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's someone I refer to quite often, abolitionist scholar, and, and I personally think pretty brilliant. And she has this definition around racism, which doesn't expressly mention health, but I think the way in which you framed institutionalized racism and health and her definition of racism kind of work together. So this one I will read in full to, to contextualize the question. And, and this is Ruth Wilson Gilmore on racism, which she says, um, and again, I did not memorize this, so I'm reading this off of my notes. Um, <laughs> racism specifically is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vul- vulnerability to premature death, right? And so when I hear words like premature death, I'm I'm link, I come back to like actuarial tables and all that kind of stuff. And all that insurance is all part of health, right? So that's why I kind of like, I'm, I'm bringing that up, right? So long preamble, but I wanted to dive into your thoughts as to the, the ensuing and ongoing health crisis at that lay at the roots of ins- institutionalized racism. And, and how do we focus more of our, conversations there rather than on the personal failings of individual Mm -hmm. (laughs) racists. I mean, you really said, that's a whole word. When you said that care is at the root of a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now, that's what it is, a lack of empathy. Until people in positions of power, until decision makers actually care about the health outcomes of marginalized people, I don't know that we will see the change. It may be one of those things where it has to get to a tipping point where the consumer is so aware 
that then the industries change. Right now, all I'm seeing is lip service. So Pride is a perfect example. We're at the tail end of June, which is when a lot of people celebrate Pride, not in Georgia, because we don't want to hate to death. We do it in October. But so many people are investing, well, I won't say investing, let's say throwing a little bit of change at DEI programming and rainbow washing their logo for the month of June. But if you go into their business, they don't even have a gender neutral bathroom. Why would you go work somewhere where you don't know whether or not you're going to be able to relieve yourself during the day? Who would do that? So you're all about pride, but when people tell you something very small that you can do, you say, oh, but it could be a problem. It's an inconvenience. We rent this building. We can possibly put up another sign. We just can't figure it out. It's exactly like how, think of how many people were told you cannot work from home. You Let's say you have low amounts of energy because you're chronically ill, or it's really difficult for you to get into the building that you work in. And you've asked if you can work from home. Well, prior to 2020, the answer was always no. It's just impossible. We just can't do it. Well, when people had to do it so that their businesses would keep operating, when the concern was their bottom line, oh, it's a miracle. Everybody can work from home. Wow, how, how interesting, right? So many people have been asking for that for years because of a disability as a reasonable accommodation, and they couldn't get anyone to say yes. So I really question, when will we see care prioritized in a country where profits have always been more important than people? Like, why did the genocide happen? Why did the transatlantic slave trade happen? It's profits over people, profits over people, and finding ways to justify how you're treating other human beings. So I want to be more optimistic, but the way people have been pushing back so hard against those of us who want to make a world in which everyone can belong and everyone can thrive, I have no idea when we can expect uh, a shift in that conversation that's beyond the surface level. Is there so many people that believe in order for someone else to have access to a comfortable life, a safe life, that they have to lose something, which is not true. You don't have to lose anything in order for other people's lives to be comfortable. You just have to reimagine things. And it helps to think about everyone when you're going into a situation. Like think of how many buildings, yeah, it was difficult to retrofit them with ramps. But you knew that not everybody could walk when you built the building. So why couldn't you just include everyone when you set up the building? It's so much easier if there are lots of different voices at the table when we create systems, when we create programs, so people can tell us, oh, you're leaving me out and people like me out in this way. Then together you can reimagine something that allows everyone to exist. Is there, again, this is an unscripted question. But I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying and I'm kind of nodding along. And I wonder, is there, I don't even know where I'm going with this. So bear with me a little bit. Is there some sort of like weird fetishization of resilience among communities that, that we don't have to think about in the sense oh, yeah. that this is where I'm going with this, right? Because there's, there's so many stories of people who have to overcome something, right? Like they're dealing with a thing, whatever the thing is, and they have to overcome it. And 
I'm reflecting on my own experiences. Again, I grew up in the 70s in New York, right? Where, you know, this place is hard to get around in under the best circumstances. In the 70s, the idea that someone who is is differently abled or has like a wheelchair or something to move around was not even thought of. Like there was just no way that you were capable of doing it. The buses did not drop down. There was no ramp. There were no elevators in the subway. And we still don't have that, right? Like we have the buses part, but if you're trying to go from one stop in Brooklyn to another stop somewhere else, they may or may not have an elevator, right? And, and this affects any number of different people, right? The elderly, those who are differently abled, those who are pregnant, those who have kids, those who are tra- carrying lots of bags from Trader Joe's. Like there's a lot of things, right? But yet when we see people from these communities do heroic things, climb a mountain or something, we think that's amazing. But to your point, if we had to think about retrofitting a building, we'd be like, get the fuck out of here. I can't do that, right? Like, I don't know the management company. What's that going to cost me? I have a lease, you know, like all these other things. So again, I wasn't planning to go there, but I'm just curious, like, is there something like that going on? Because it made me think about the part of the book where you talk about the resilience of, in particularly like Black people, but I think there was a paragraph where you talk about stereotypically black women are seen as resilient. And so the suffering becomes part of like how we look up to you, right? Yes. Meaning meaning that particular group, right? Like, oh, you're so strong, right? Like these yeah. things, you know, so I've jumbled a lot of stuff in there. So I apologize to drop it at your doorstep, but thoughts? Yes. <laughs> oh, I absolutely hear what you're saying because you see that so much with people who have visible disabilities, that people will give them the weirdest backhanded, unsolicited compliments. Like if you have CP and you're minding your business and you're like drinking a coffee in a public place, some dummy may come up to you and say, you're so brave. For what though? For what? I think what's behind that is this idea that there's only one good way to be in a human body and everyone else is like being a champ by deciding to still get up every day and understand that the body that they're in is just as acceptable as anyone else's. And I want to withdraw dummy because I know that's like a, another word rooted in ableism. It's everywhere. The ableism's everywhere. I'm really working on trying to notice that. It's really interesting when it's an identity that you don't hold, but you're not a person who's worked on developing your empathy, how you see the smite, the slightest suggestion that you should make a change. It's insurmountable. Like you said, retrofitting a building, impossible, or having a conversation that makes me uncomfortable, impossible. Oh, I know having this conversation could make your life better at this company, but I can't possibly be inconvenienced even for a moment because I am closer to having this idealized body. I'm in a good body and you are supposed to just do whatever it takes to get through life. And if you break your back enough and you manage to do something that the rest of us acknowledge, then we'll celebrate you. So suffering in silence is really celebrated. And it is certainly a cultural thing here in the United States a dominant cultural thing, a white American cultural thing to stress suffering in silence. And if you bring up a problem, then you 
are the problem. It is considered extremely rude. It's considered aggressive. It's considered hostile to identify a problem because other people who haven't developed any sense of empathy cannot be bothered to be inconvenienced even a little for someone else's life to be dramatically improved. And that's what I just keep, keep hearing, especially this week. Someone out of the blue sent me unsolicited. I love how people send you unsolicited things that you obviously will not like, and they act like they don't know (laughs) that's what they're doing. Someone sent me an article about a trans woman, a trans athletic woman competing with a cis woman, and the trans woman won. And they were trying to frame it as, oh, I'm just so concerned about cis female athletes. Really? You're so concerned about cis women? Well, there are a lot of cis women protesting in the streets right now because they're very concerned about reproductive rights. This person wasn't concerned about that. They pretend they're concerned about this. When in reality, they don't want to be inconvenienced to have to reimagine a world in which everyone who wants to play sports can play sports and it's not this dramatic thing. Surely it can be done. I'm not big into sports, so I don't know what the solution is. But I know that people who are involved in these sports could all come to the table with diverse perspectives and figure it out. The resistance is that people just don't want to care if they think it has nothing to do with them, if they have no sense of empathy. But naturally, humans are empathetic. So it seems like this is something that has been trained into people to just think about yourself, to be hyper-individualistic, because in nature even, you see how collaborative mammals generally are. I mean, also vicious, but also collaborative. So this is socialization that people need to overcome to get back to being empathetic. Yeah, people will definitely pick their spots as to what part of the concern spectrum they'll yeah. they'll fall on, <laughs> especially if they're trying to make a point. And you know, I'm I'm not going to go into the sports thing, um, only because we don't got that much time to go into the sports thing. But I, I will offer this: that sports is another one of those arenas, much like science, where people really lean into because it's supposed to be a level playing field right? Sports is supposed to be this thing that though it has rules is fair, right? The best persons or teams or what have you usually win, right? While, while not examining all of the things that go in, go into and about making that all happen, right? So I think it's one of those places where people project a lot of shit that they don't really know other than they like, they like a team, or person or whatever, or whatever it is. And that now becomes sacrosanct in, in their minds, right? Yeah. Oh, it's so much projecting and an attachment to things not changing when that's the only thing that ever happens is change. So if you're not willing to adapt and grow, you're going to spend so much of your life unnecessarily distressed about changes. And I say that as someone who hates change. Yeah. <laughs> But I know when I feel that reaction myself, like, oh, this is coming from an irrational place. This is just me. It's a weirdo human quirk. And if I really think it through, I actually want to keep growing and evolving. How can I 
dig deeper and learn more about this and be a little less attached to the way things used to be. Yeah, absolutely. We and we we all have to change. You know, there's there's many things that we've experienced in in our lives. I've, I've been on this planet for almost fifty of them, right? And things have changed, right? And and I'm still here, and we're all still here. <laughs> it's gonna be okay, right? I think it's it's very important to let things go and also understand. Yeah, there's yeah there's small things like hey, I like Hershey Kisses, right? I'm not really trying to change my brand of chocolate. <laughs> and then there's other big systemic things, right? That Hey, it's good that black people can vote, right? Yes, right. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny because it all depends on your perspective. It's like a change that you've been wishing and hoping for. Absolutely. You celebrate that. But then things that you either have never been hurt by or you never even noticed it was an issue, you can get so bent out of shape when it suddenly changes. Like now that I'm trying to pull down an example, nothing's coming to mind, but I've just seen people over the years get so upset about the most minor things, like even a character. Oh, this is an example. When on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Aunt Viv changed. Oh yeah. Old, old, former Aunt Viv and then the longer running Aunt Viv. Right. <laughs> like it's a TV show, right? Mm-hmm. I, I did of course, also project my own issues with colorism on that situation. But in reality, it could just be as simple as something changed and sometimes people aren't available to play the same character for all eternity. We don't need to get so deeply yeah. invested in this. You know, it's a show. People can have beef, right? Like right? they got producers, directors, agents, all kinds of stuff that happens on, on a TV show. Like, I don't even know that story, but I mean, I know they change, but I don't remember all the ins and outs. I know they've had long-standing beef then the beef got squashed and you know now it's like everybody's cool again because they had a reunion show and i'm like okay i'm good <laughs> right like, some people are literally still and people who didn't know them weren't involved were watching from home are still kind of miffed about it it's been a long long time so if things like that continually bother you that's adding to your baseline stress levels. And that's something that a lot of us really just can't afford to be doing. So it's worthwhile to consider, are there areas where I possibly could control how upset I'm getting? And if I feel like it's way too big of an ask, could I possibly get help understanding, like, is there any way to bring my nervous system back down to a comfortable place? Or is there something I could be doing, like a practice that develops my ability to come back to a comfortable place? It's, it's like two things we're trying to balance is that you want to build up your resilience, but also you don't have to be strong. Like, why can't we get to a point where it's okay to be Black and an imbecile? Why, why can't you be that? Why do you have yeah. to be excellent, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be and, nice to be able to just be a person? Yeah, you know, and, and you know, it's interesting I'm going to paraphrase this because I'm, I'm, I don't have the piece in front of me. And again, this is off off notes. Roxanne Gay wrote a piece talking about like how hard we become, right? That if, if again, if again, I'm paraphrasing this piece, she writes for the New York Times. Anybody could look this up. It was in the spring. I want to think it was around the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing, but it might not have. Actually, I think it was because I think it was talking about like, oh. should, you know, should it was a joke, right? The whole thing was like, what's a joke and why should we, like, what should be funny and to who and why do we say like, oh, get a 
get a thicker skin. That was what it was. Oh. Like, get a thicker skin. And she was like, you know, if you're constantly getting a thicker skin, like when you think about that, like what does that do to you as a person, right? Like you're sort of hardening yourself, right? In order to move through the world. And why should that be the goal, right? Like why should we all be moving around in hardened skin as we try to interact with one another, right? And and what does that mean? You know, for me, I'm extrapolating that to the point we were both talking about with care, right? It's hard to care if you're walking around with a thick skin all the time. Oh, wow. Right? Like, you know, yeah. um, shout out to Roxanne Gay. I'm, I'm sure I butchered most of the content of your essay, but I don't but have The beautiful thing is, man, she's such an amazing <laughs> writer, is that she communicated that essence that you just shared with all of us which I didn't read the original piece, but you've passed on. That's just such a beautiful, perfect way to explain it, that you're sacrificing parts of your humanity in an attempt to feel more safe because you don't know when's the next time you're going to be triggered, you're going to be insulted, you're going to be attacked. But how is that affecting your ability to experience the rest of your life? Whenever you get desensitized, it's across the board. So then your ability to experience joy and happiness and fun times hanging out with your friends or your grandchildren or your partner, that will also be muted. How is that fair? Yeah. How is that a goal? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff, especially when you come from a, from communities, multiple communities, where, you know, we used to call it joning on one another, right? Or playing the dozens back in like the old, old days, right? Like just, or, you know, my family, I got family from the UK, you know, colonialism, all that stuff, you know, they taking a piss, right? Like that was just part of how you're wired. You got to be able to take a piss, which just means like talking shit. Yeah. Wait, are you part West Indian? Totally West Indian. Oh! <laughs> Okay. I don't know why I didn't know that. Or if you mention it a lot in the podcast. No, I, I didn't. I didn't in this particular time, but I, I literally waved that flag all the time. <laughs> well, so my mom is half Jamaican, half Cuban, but more than anything else, I feel like we certainly spent more time visiting the Jamaican family, but now they're all in the US and yeah. in the UK and Canada. But when we were little, some of us were still there. It's really interesting how a lot of people give Jamaicans a hard time for being really rough with each other and low key, maybe everybody, <laughs> you know, when you go to Jamaican restaurant, no one's treating you like a delicate flower. If that's what you want, get, just get out. Yeah. So it, it's interesting though, but I still see the sensitivity there. So it's like people have developed skills to rough each other up just enough to maybe build a little bit of resilience but you can see that people are still feeling a full range of human emotion, like really freely expressing like grief or anger and distress and joy and laughter. But also it's almost like trying to build a little bit of protection into the people around them by giving them a hard time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon, right? Which we're, which we're still unraveling. Like a lot of the lessons that, I internalize as a, you know, young dude growing up in Brooklyn and are different than the things that I would do. Or I've, I've even seen my friends who have now gone on and had kids and do other things like that. We've all changed, right? So to our, our point, I think change is good, you know, net, net, right? Even though we see in change right now, they, they pulling us back. So that change much less good, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but I, I want to jump to not really jump, but I want to continue talking about like a core part of 
of the book in the time that we have left, which is this idea of, of you mentioned dieting as oppression that leads off like a whole section of the book. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of ex- explain that thought process a little bit more before I kind of lead into some, some other stuff. I've really noticed in my own life and clients and friends and family that anything that you do again and again and again and again really affects the way you move through all areas of your life. So if you have taught yourself or if someone taught you and then you continued the behavior, that when you're upset, you do not say anything about it and you try not to let it show and you stuff it down. There will be environments where it would be perfectly safe for you to say, no, I, I don't want that, or I'm allergic to that, or that's gonna, you know, that's gonna do me harm. And you still won't say anything because you've gotten so accustomed to saying nothing when you're uncomfortable, when you're suffering. Dieting teaches you to ignore your intuition. It teaches you to ignore your body. It teaches you to assume that you are wrong when you get a gut feeling that you should do something. You know, you see in children, they have an excellent ability to gauge when they're hungry, when they need to go to the restroom. And a lot of these skills you do carry on to adulthood. Like I don't know any adults who think they should ask someone or call a doctor for their opinion to figure out like, oh, should I have a BM today? Is now the time? They still trust that process. But people will train you out of believing that you know when you're hungry, you know when you're satisfied, and you know what food feels good in your body and what food does not. And you eat so many times a day, every day of your life. What is that doing to your consciousness to think that you are not capable of making that decision, that basic, basic decision? And dieting undermines people's self-confidence in so many other ways. Because your body pushes back really hard when it senses that fat cells have shrunken. And most diets end with you rebounding and weight cycling and gaining even more weight. So in addition to the diet itself teaching you, don't look inward to decide what to do, look outward. It tells you again and again that you're a failure and you need to find more external help to figure out how to fix your incorrect body. You're not good enough body. You can't celebrate your now body. You have to stuff yourself into pants that don't fit. You just think of all the things that that idea that a thin body is always better, all the negative behaviors that are linked to that, that make people feel like trash on a daily basis. If people are already telling you you're not good enough, that you must be excellent at all times, And then on top of that, three times a day or more, you're reinforcing, I don't even know how to direct my next step. Where does that leave you? And I I think there's like a a ton of stuff about the personal responsibility of things, right? That things become personal failings. Mm -hmm. So again, we blame kind of cultural habits, social habits, you know, ancestral habits. And as you were sharing that, again, off script, one of the things I thought about is like, is our, and I'm going to talk about American food, right? Is our food just shittier? I think 110%. Anytime you travel, anytime (laughs) you travel, it's crazy. Like it usually takes me two or three weeks 
and I feel like a different person. And I think, what the hell are they feeding me back home? And that could even be fresh produce I had. This is, well, this is an off topic. I went to a coaching retreat and there were Mm -hmm. two students there from Honduras. And the husband was loving all the food. He was loving the hamburgers, loving everything. Everywhere we took the wife, no matter how fresh we tried to get the food, we went to Whole Foods, we went to vegan organic places. You could tell she was trying to be polite, but she literally kept spitting the food out. She's like, everything tastes so old. Yeah. Well, yeah, it does. And what, what, you know, what can we do about that? So even our highest quality, best, most fresh food, she was just like, oh my God, what do you people eat here? It's awful. Like, because I always joke if I go to like Italy or something like that, like I eat, you know, by, again, by these judgy standards, eating the, the pasta, the carb, gelato at every break and come back weighing less, right? Like, you know, to to the extent that the scale means anything, but I'm just using it as a barometer. Like there's no way I eat ice cream every day. Absolutely not. I do. But there I go to Italy, I do exactly the same thing. I think it's a rule. Yeah. (laughs) And it's delicious. And I I walk away with less effect, right? But if I were to eat Haagen-Dazs every day here or, you know, whatever bullshit people have, I'd be, you know, it wouldn't work for me. I literally can't even digest it here. You know, yeah. there are lots of little choices that we have made as a country in the interest of profits that you don't even notice as a consumer. Like when I first went abroad alone, because when I traveled abroad as a kid, I didn't notice these things. I just ate whatever I was given. But when I saw eggs just sitting out at room temperature yeah. in Spain, I was like, what's happening? What's happening? This isn't safe. This isn't right. When in reality, it's how eggs are processed here that compromises the um, like membrane barrier that keeps random bacteria outside of the egg. Because of how it's processed, we can't keep our eggs at room temperature. Those eggs are are fine. And why are you questioning like a whole, I say you talking to myself, why are you questioning yeah. like an entire country? I think they know how to yeah. their eggs, right? But I immediately thought our way was better. The eggs were the issue. They would have, they would have been done a long time exactly. ago, right? But it's true. And it's a, and it's a great example. And you know, we got a little bit of time left because I'm keeping an eye on the time. And I wanted to to just spend a little, I won't have all the time I want on this. This could be a whole new show, but just the overwhelming sort of indoctrinated whiteness of the wellness, what, I, what I'm calling the wellness space, right? So yeah. it's it's nutrition, it's exercise, it's apparel, it's, you know, gentrifying things like yoga. It seems like a, a overwhelming just thing that exists. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, which is unfair because I haven't left that much time. But also, <laughs> I want to also tie it to like ideological and political things. Because I've noticed, mm-hmm. especially with COVID, that in those spaces tends to be some of the most virulent like deniers of COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. And and they'll use pre-existing conditions as the reason why this shouldn't matter, which when I was reading your book, again, it seems like pre-existing conditions has become the new shorthand for your, it's your fault. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know? That is a hundred percent how I hear it. But who, who chooses these pre-existing conditions? The one thing that everybody really seemed to be going to town on was obesity is a pre-existing condition because everyone thinks your weight is your fault. But like you just said, if you go abroad, 
you change your environment and your weight changes, how can you change your entire food environment in the U.S.? And it isn't an issue of like, oh, do you live in a food desert? Oh, can you not drive here or there? I have plenty of access. If I want to go to Whole Foods every day, I can. The food is not the same here. It's just not. It takes forever for the food to get here. I mean, I live in Georgia. Most of the food I eat probably had to come three days away by truck minimum. People pick things before they're ripened. They ripen them in warehouses. And I'm not even saying that any of that stuff is bad. I'm saying that I don't get to choose my food environment. I don't get to choose the environment that I live in, period. I was born in the United States. My ancestors were stolen and taken here to live on the stolen land. I didn't get to pick that. My body is doing the best that it can, all things considered. And I say, it's doing a damn good job. The fact that I'm alive right now, good enough, right? You're still here. (laughs) Still here. And so many people, this obsession that they have with wellness, what I hear is that they think if you eat enough kale, you're going to live forever. And that is not a thing. So I almost feel like it's also a layer of this hyper-individualistic culture that doesn't really have a deep connection to spirituality. Because the way a lot of people practice Christianity, it's very on the surface. It's just like concepts and rules. I don't really know that in their bones, people feel comfortable with the idea that at some point, this too will be a corpse, right? I feel fine with that. It doesn't bother me. So I know that I will not be rewarded with immortality if I'm really, really good slash only eat things that aren't palatable. And I really think that's what's behind some of this obsession. There are even books entitled How to Not Die. And I, it's not fair for me to pick that particular book because I do like that author. And a lot of the stuff they are saying is really, really grounded in the science and almost countercultural in the United States. But that's just an example because you can't not die, right? And I know he didn't mean that. But anyway, I also feel like a lot of people have gotten so accustomed to consuming people of color that they have no context for understanding why it's problematic to take over mindfulness spaces and then be hostile to AAPI people or to take over yoga spaces and then make no room for any of the spiritual aspects of yoga or to even come into black spaces using the music and the dancing or let's say ruining twerking, there's people out there now making that a very intense, like high intensity workout, which is fine if that's what you want to do. However, if you could see how there's like no people of color in these videos selling something that was a clearly coming from West Africa in the diaspora cultural thing, something that black people have been ridiculed for, you know, oh, you seem hypersexual, don't move your body that way. How many people will come in to cultural spaces where people have been condemned and ridiculed for a certain cultural practice and they adopt it? And once it becomes white, it's suddenly acceptable. And you see it happen again and again and again. And if you're in a wellness space and you don't acknowledge how that might affect the emotional and psychological well being of people, of color. I don't understand how you consider yourself a healer, but most yeah. of these folks wouldn't be comfortable saying like, well, my healing is for whites only, but in, in action, that's what you're telling us, but you would never say those words. Yeah. That's the, that's their speaking to the quote unquote 
norm again, right? right. As long as it it looks like them. I, I I mean, I have a yoga practice, and I always laugh because I was at an event this past weekend that was filled with these like weirdo types. It wasn't for yoga, but it was for something else. And when people asked me to reflect on it, I'm like, it was what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> they had on, they all had on the uniform. There are a lot of every everything was was kind of beige and and low cut. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of amulets and nose rings. See, what do you do when you're drawn to these things? I'm like, I like crystals. I want to charge my rose quartz by the moon, but I don't want to be in a space that tells me to love and light my way through the experience of racism. Get out of here. Like the, yeah. the lack of depth in some people's interpretation of, well, I'm going to say people who have all the privilege, their interpretation of spirituality, it gets to be very superficial because it doesn't need to be profound. And you really can counter the damage of like all this chronic stress, but you can't do it with tools made by people who aren't willing to get into the weeds, who aren't capable of nuance, who didn't build up critical thinking skills because their identities have been celebrated their whole life and they still haven't decided to question white supremacy. And that's certainly not all white people because a lot of white people are really starting to do the work or have been doing the work for years to really get white supremacy out of their bodies and out of their minds. But there's a lot of people who have not decided to go that route and they are not competent healers and they are not capable of helping marginalized people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. These things are, are, are super deep and I think it's, it's why you see this full circle where in, in some spaces that would consider themselves to be wellness spaces, which comes with a lot of stuff, right? Meaning we're open-minded, we're more connected to making a better world and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of have simple rules for things like that, right? If I if I look at your gathering and I don't see different kind of people, I just consider that to be kind of bullshit. So that's yeah, my, that's that's my editorial stuff. for that. No, no group that purports to change the world can all look like one thing. That's a, that's a, a clear indication that you are on the wrong path. And that is not a world that I want to be a part of. Oh, that is an excellent point. And that's how you get snuck into cults. You know, so it's, a, it's an eye test for me. That's how you get sucked into cults, right? You show up, everybody's wearing the same uniform. There's no diversity. There's nobody there to say like, did you hear what they just said? Yeah. What now? It's so interesting how homogenous a lot of the cults are. But of course, Jim Jones, his cult was very diverse. So that also breaks that rule, but still. But, but, you know, that's one rule, but I, I will agree with you. I think that for the most part, whenever I'm watching like a cult show and I watch a lot of cult shows, I'll be looking around and there's always that one confused black person. <laughs> and I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, how did you fall for the okie doke? Yeah. Like, I expected more from you. Like, how did they that, get you? Isn't that somebody who didn't do any of their work getting their internalized bigotry out of their heart or something? I, I'm just I assuming know. that was somebody who, if you knew them, you'd have been like, yeah, but they don't know they're black. They've decided was, they're going to assimilate their way to privilege. Unfortunately, yeah, that was one of the things I, I experienced a little bit, not this weekend, but it's just one of my, again, eye test, right? If I'm, if I'm out in the world and I walk into a space and there's a black person and I don't get tacit acknowledgement that we're both <laughs> in this space, you suspect. <laughs> That's so true. So you suspect true. right away. Like if you, <laughs> if you go out of your way to kind of do one of these like, 
like were you yeah desperately not trying to make eye contact come over there because on some level they think if they're seen with a black person somehow that will out them as a black person even though they're obviously a black person i know exactly what you're talking about that's why sometimes i gotta go deep and be like what's up man (laughs) you know Give him the extra 80s Eddie Murphy black. I love it. Well, it's so funny because I was ridiculed so much growing up for not being quote unquote black enough. But I've always been so into my blackness and being part of the diaspora. But I wasn't being black the way that Southern black Americans wanted me to be, which, oh, sorry, I'm only half American. But I definitely know how to clock the difference between someone who's just a different kind of black person that maybe you haven't met before and someone who is hoping that no one's noticed they're black. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a nuance, but you can, you can see it like a cheap suit. <laughs> I get like so many faces like immediately come to mind. And I honestly, I feel, I feel bad for them because if you are separated from any of your identities that aren't being celebrated, it's doing yeah. you harm. It's eating you from the inside out. I don't know if you remember Imitation of Life. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah, of course. That's that's one of my mom's favorite movies. So I had no choice but to watch that. <laughs> well, it's so funny because I have meet other people my age and younger who've never seen it. But my mom also made us watch it like multiple times. And she just wanted us to understand like the damage of passing on any level. Yeah. Of course, I think in hindsight, my mom would have told me like, oh, but it's okay to pass if you're queer. I disagree. I think that it does you harm. Mm -hmm. If you have to pass for the sake of safety, absolutely. It's only your decision. But when you choose to do it, hoping you're going to get some privilege crumbs, you are hurting yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe Imitation of Life might have been like a Caribbean thing because my mom definitely was watching that movie. And I was like, why do you want to watch this? But (laughs) we had like a smattering of all these things that I had to watch growing up, which I now many of them I love, like Ten Commandments, Sound of Music. Like, Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Is that possibly a Caribbean thing? Because I I have seen every Julie Andrews movie, every single one. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that is something. I... If I watch, I, first of all, I still watch sound music every year it's on. I think like, I also clockwork. think that's a rule. <laughs> and then those songs would be stuck in my head for the next month. <laughs> I'm walking around talking about how do I solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> and people, people are like, "What is wrong with you?" See, that's, that's the kind of stuff that had people telling me I wasn't being black enough. But I'm like, this is what my black ass family watched with me. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, it's super black. It's blackity black. Sound of music? Come on. (laughs) Well, I like, even though sometimes people don't apply the lessons, but I think it's such a good example of how things can be going along swimmingly, like kids are falling in love, you're singing in fields, and actually the world is falling apart around you. Yeah, the fascists are at the door. And it's just a matter of time before, you know, shit's going to get real and you're neck of the woods as well. And you climbing a mountain into Switzerland, talking about the hills are alive. <laughs> that's, that was my lesson from that movie. I don't know yeah. if that's everybody else's. Velvet. It can happen just that quick. Yeah. You know, everybody's life has a Rolf. Yeah. Be aware of him. He's ready what? to He's ready to literally blow the whistle and not, One like, minute. not, not like too short. <laughs> One minute, you're, you're like a teenager in love. The next, your little boyfriend's. All in with the Nazis. Yeah, that yeah. movie has a lot of good lessons. I don't think yeah, everybody's getting op. all the lessons. 
Rolf is the worst. Yeah. He's one of the worst characters ever. I'm like, dude, you're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to get to the final two segments of the show. That was a wonderful conversation. We went everywhere. Yeah. That, <laughs> oh. uh, when you said you have trouble like keeping the conversation straight line, I was like, well, well, because uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> no. Well, okay. We kindred spirits then. Um, off the dome is just where I add some just fun questions. I have three of them. No pressure at all. First thing that comes to mind. Now, people like yourself who are involved in so many different things, you're a writer, you have podcasts, you're a scholar. When you think about all the things that you classify as work, however you classify that, what is the most essential thing you need in order to get your work done? Well, quiet time. Yeah. Quiet time. Question number two. Joy comes up a lot in your work, finding your joy, finding the place that you belong. What is the space or place that brings you joy? Oh, I have converted my guest bedroom into, I'm saying the whole room is an altar now. And I've started trying to become a better plant parent right now. All the plants in there are alive and thriving. So this room is just full of plants, like wall to wall. I have a space in there for my ancestors. And when I go in there, it's totally quiet, except for my cats meowing at the door, but they know they're not allowed in there. And it's just so calming and restorative. That's my happy space. Okay, that's awesome. My last one is, if you had to keep only one modern appliance, what would that appliance be? It's got to be my computer. I guess that's not an appliance. Is it an appliance like refrigerator, blender? You know, I I don't know. An appliance could be anything we turn on, in my mind. I have to, I need my shows. So yeah, I have to keep the computer. Absolutely. That's a good one. Can't go wrong there. I watch everything. So the, the final segment of the show is called The Drop. And The Drop is where we can share anything at all with our listeners and I have one drop, and so I'll go first. I usually go first just because people are always like, want to get their mind right. Um, So my drop is Watership Down, which is an animated show from like back in the day. And I just- The old one though, right? Not the new one. Yeah, not the Netflix one. Okay. The the original animated cartoon is on HBO Max. (sighs) And I've discovered that by accident, and it's amazing. I also recommend the book. So it's kind of same thing, but recommending both parts. Watership Down, both the book by Richard Adams, but the animated HBO Max is amazing. Watership Down is my drop. Man, that is such a good book. I've read that book so many freaking times. It's like one of my favorite childhood books. That changes what I thought I wanted my drop to be. I read Persimmon Saves the World. I love books where animals are doing big things and they talk. And this little raccoon is just compassionate and out there to liberate all the animals. It's so well written. I just bought the second part, but I haven't started it yet. But Persimmon Saves the World. If you like talking animals, doing big things, you will like this book very much. All right. That's a good one. (laughs) I'm jotting that down. All of this obviously goes in our show notes. And I do love animals doing big things, right? Watership Down is all about that. You got to leave the old Warren Find your own way. Prince of a Thousand Enemies. <laughs> Man, it's such a good one. And that is a reminder that shitty people can do great things. Because that man, the man who wrote it was quoted saying something ridiculous. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. The book is great. I don't need to know what crazy stuff he said. Don't need it. I'm the same way. I didn't even know that. And I'm not even going to Google it. <laughs> 
I'm gonna I'm gonna sit in the Prince of a Thousand Enemies. It's become my my metaphor for those of us who are radical progressives, how we live in the world, because we are the prince of a thousand enemies. We have oh. conservatives to deal with, we have liberals to deal with. We get it from all sides, Prince of a Thousand Enemies. <laughs> oh, I love that. I need to go back to that. I recently repurchased the audiobook. So yeah, because I saw the new cartoon and I'm like, that looks like trash. I like the old one. <laughs> the old one is much better. It terrified me for years afterward, which is how I know it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Dahlia, this has been an amazing conversation. You've it's, it's later where I am. Well, no, we're on the same time zone, actually, because you're in Atlanta. It's late, but it's well worth it. This was awesome. I, I want to thank you so much for being on a deep dive with me. Thanks for having me. This has been a fantastic experience. Thank you so much. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.